Harmony, Trust, and Mistrust in Marriage The person who denies his will in marriage, denies his wants, opinions, and desires in order to accommodate the weaknesses of the other person, lives the same life-giving modification of monasticism. The man who has as his goal the love of God while putting to death his earthly will, wants, and desires, while dying to the world, he resurrects his soul and becomes full of life. While sacrificing his earthly wants, he discovers his true self, and in loving the other person unconditionally, he begins to understand his real existence. He does not smother the other person with his love. The one who smothers does not yet know how to love. We hear the plight of some spouses who suffer from such smothering, a terrible distortion of love. It is best not to be loved at all than to have to put up with this kind of love, the total enslavement of the other person. Can you imagine someone who loves you so much that they monitor every one of your movements and question you? Why did you come 10 minutes late from the store? This is not love. This is tyranny of the worst kind. This is demonic love and the fruit of envy and selfishness. Harmony, then, is the result of denying our wants and all those things that once described our premarital individual existence. It is an art that we need to exercise and develop so we can enter harmoniously into the space of the other person. And that's why the church prays that God may keep them in harmony and steadfastness of faith. The steadfastness of faith here has two different objectives. The first is to keep steadfast faith in God, which is a higher and deeper faith, not a faith in the existence of God, which is very elementary or introductory faith. Elementary faith is to believe in God, to believe in Christ, in the Holy Trinity, the Creed, the Gospel, to believe and accept what our church teaches. This is intellectual and psycho-emotional faith, but steadfast faith goes beyond all these intellectual and psycho-emotional boundaries and enters the arena of experiential faith. Man now enters the arena of virtues, the area of God's commandments, and he enters the arena of temptations and spiritual warfare, and stays grounded in the faith of God, transcending the boundaries of logic and the ways of the world. It is this steadfast faith that made the Apostle Peter walk on the waves of the sea. Now tell someone to walk on the sea today. They will call you crazy, and uh, rightfully so, simply because man is not made to walk on water. Yet Peter asked Christ to allow him to walk on the same waves that Christ was walking on. And Christ said, Come. Peter jumped into the sea and started to walk on the water by energizing the steadfast faith by believing that the one next to him is the Son of God and he's all-powerful. At some point, Peter looked around. He began to use his human logic that told him, what are you doing? You can't walk on water. And he instantly began to sink. 
And Christ chastised him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, my young friends, faith is extremely powerful. It reverses the laws of nature. It transcends the laws of physics. Faith does not go against logic. It simply transcends human logic and enters the sphere of God's grace where everything is possible. Faith is not illogical. It simply goes beyond and above human logic and enters the logic of God, so to speak, which is infinite. Where God intervenes, the natural, physical, and biological laws stand still. The faith of Peter and the presence of the grace of God neutralize gravity. And once Peter lowered himself to human logic, he deactivated the grace of God and he sunk. Man can invite miracles and the energies of God in his life when he remains faithful and through steadfast faith, he can transcend the laws of nature. In this same petition of the betrothal service, there's also a second dimension of this steadfast faith, the dimension of mutual faith and trust between the couple. Now, how does this faith come about? How can this total faith and trust be developed today in a world that looks out for number one, in a world where doubt and mistrust is the norm? Only a fool believes everything he hears today. The norm is to never trust anyone and to make sure that you are not being lied to. Everyone takes advantage of the other person today, and this air of disbelief and doubt is very prevalent. We all have been taken advantage of from time to time. We have lost money. We paid for services we never received. We have been victimized or duped. My friends, let me tell you something. It is better for us to be duped now and then than to lose our innocence. To falsely believe that everyone is out to get us and to treat every person we meet with suspicion and mistrust. This is not a Christian way. This is not a Christian outlook. Christ knew all about the tendencies of Judas. Christ did not exclude him. He did not treat him any differently. Christ did not try to defend himself. He treated Judas just like uh, the other apostles. This is very important, my young friends, to not allow the sinister ways of the world to change us or to harden us. I prefer to be duped, and I am. I, I am many times. And now I have developed uh, the reputation here in Limassol that I'm an easy target but I prefer to stay this way. I don't want to question the sincerity of every person that passes from my office. I don't want to ask for doctor's reports if they truly need medicine or not. I don't want to cross-examine the person in front of me to see if they are sincere or not before I give them a few pounds. I don't want to be thinking that this person is lying or deceitful or a professional beggar or whatever. This is not good even though you may think that this is the only way to protect yourself. In reality, we destroy our innocence and simplicity. Once we destroy our innocence, then we will look at everything with an impure eye. There are some basic human expressions very dear to us, like a smile or a hug or a kiss, which can be rendered in total innocence 
And yet these things can be totally misconstrued by someone who's steeped in carnality and evil and impurity. When innocence is lost, then we begin to look at the other person as gender, as male or female. We lose the importance of the person and we diminish our neighbor to an object or a possession or a tool. This is deplorable. Can we not hug or embrace or kiss a person with innocence and brotherly love? Of course we can if we continue to purify our heart and if we don't allow the world to change us. Elder Iakovos Tsalikis was in Athens one day and saw a boy and a girl kissing each other outside of their school. And he said, look at these loving siblings, how much they love each other. He rejoiced because his mind could not think evil. He was not scandalized at all. By always thinking good, and that's the way of the Christian heart, he could not criticize or judge anyone. Now, if this worldly evil of mistrust and suspicion comes into the marriage, and the husband gives 45 minutes to his wife to complete her shopping, or 25 minutes to get home from work, and he's pointing to the clock every time she's 10 minutes late, then we are in need of much treatment. A marriage cannot stand under these circumstances. Or the husband smiles at the waitress at the local restaurant, and the wife kicks the husband under the table. Why did you smile at her? Why did you look at her? These are all symptoms of the loss of our innocence. Our grandparents were engaged for years, and they never had any trouble with lust or impurity. They waited until they got married. They were not stressing. They did not feel the need to possess and conquer the other person. Today, things are turned upside down. Our minds are bombarded from everywhere. People's eyes and minds have become damaged. They look at the other person with one thing in mind. You see them driving down the street. Instead of looking on the road, they keep staring at the sidewalk to get a good look. Their neck turns, ignoring traffic to satisfy their lust. Okay, you saw a woman walking by. Must you glare at her, risking injury to yourself and to others? He looks at her in a very bad way with lustful eyes. This is why our church, my young friends, will always put purity and virginity on the pedestal. When a person maintains his or her virginity, he does not have these problems. He keeps himself immune from the bad knowledge of these things, this bad tree of evil. That's why our forefathers gave great importance to purity and virginity, and our church continues to insist that her young children keep themselves pure until marriage so they can preserve their general innocence, which will continue even in marriage and even after they have children. Father Athanasius Mytilineos says this story about his grandfather from his mother's side. His grandfather was married with 10 children, and after his wife died, he came to live with one of his oldest daughters. At some point, he uh, was suffering from constipation, and his daughter offered to help him with an enema. And this holy grandfather said, No, no way, my child, no way. Your mother has never seen me. How can I allow you to see me? How can you possibly see me? 
his wife had never seen him and they had 10 children together. Now, most of us are going to laugh, of course. We're going to laugh at this. But it, it would be much better for us if we could shed a few tears, if we could cry a little bit because the presence of this evil pornographic knowledge inexistent a few decades ago is poisoning our minds, our families, our marriages, our schools, and our airwaves since all this material has polluted the planet with the onset of the wireless internet and all these different technologies that we're basking in today. Now, does this mean that all is lost? No, of course not. This is where the Christian struggle comes in. When a person undertakes the Christian struggle to purify his heart, he can heal himself to the point where with faith and simplicity, he will free himself from the fears, doubts, and insecurities that plague many couples today. The fear that one of the spouses may become unfaithful at some point. The craze that what if she meets someone at work or if he becomes weak while traveling. All these joy-robbing thoughts that slowly infest the entire psyche of the person. How are these thoughts of any help to us anyway? Why are we permitting these fears to paralyze us? And let's say that your husband weakened at some point and had an affair. Must you argue and poison your existence every night because of your anger or jealousy or bruised ego? Don't you have the strength to have a meaningful discussion to search for a solution? No, 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 I can't. I'm terribly hurt. I don't deserve this. I'm finished with him. Oh, you are finished with him. Now, remember, you have children. What if your son does the same thing a few years from now? Makes a similar mistake. Would you disown him? Would you tell his wife to throw him out and never speak to him again? To be finished with him? And if his wife would throw him out for a few days, would you not allow him to come and stay with you? I'm certain that not only you would welcome him, but you will begin to find all kinds of excuses for him to justify his actions. Now, why don't you treat your husband the same way? Don't you understand that your anger, jealousy, and intolerance come from your lack of love? Don't you see that up to now your love was not noble, but a love supported by the crutches of selfishness, insecurity, and pettiness? I don't know, my young friends, but I believe, and I have repeated this many times, and I believe this. I believe that if a man suddenly discovers that his wife went astray or made a mistake, He's afforded the golden opportunity to show and prove that he truly loves his wife. This is the time that she needs you the most. You need to stand by her with self-control, nobility, and sobriety to help her up, to help her discover her problem, and offer the necessary remedy without becoming hysterical, judgmental, suicidal, and maniacal. Stay above all these crazy and nonsensical emotions and try to steer and direct your family unit as a captain. Are you the captain of the ship or not? If you're the captain, if you're the captain of this ship, this is your chance and your task to steer the ship out of the rough seas and bring it to safety. But your wife was everything to you, you may say. Great. Then at this moment, if she's everything to you, at this moment, look at her as your daughter. 
or as a sister in Christ who've repeated a mistake that's been done millions of times in this world this year alone. Stay calm, try to strengthen your wife, show compassion and encourage your wife towards repentance and recovery. By getting drunk or acting suicidal or becoming physically abusive, you are acting like a captain who breaks the rudder and opens a hole in his own ship. That's not the way. The proper way is to try to communicate with your wife, assume some of the responsibility, if not most of it, because in these situations, it is usually the husband actions or inactions that pushes the wife to such desperate measures and try to see and find a way to reconciliation and wellness. Let's not act like some clueless parents encaged in their world of idealism who assume their children to be a little lower than the angels and with such high expectations their son or their daughter will never dare to tell them that Dad, I have a real problem. Mom, I'm taking drugs. He's afraid that his mother will have a heart attack. She will start pulling her hair out. She will be hysterical. She'll never be able to handle this. So it is impossible to talk to such a parent. So the poor kids keep it all to themselves. They share it with the street and they don't find any help. How can you offer any help to your children under these circumstances? You have isolated them through your spiritual immaturity and you will never be able to offer any help to them at the time they need you the most. This is how many children are lost. Likewise, if your wife knows that you will never be able to handle the truth, she will not confide in you and you will never be able to work things out. And all this because you built the foundation of your marriage on sand. Your entire edifice was built on your ill egotism and with such egotistical motives, a marriage cannot stand for very long. This is why the church and the word of God insists that before someone can love another person, he needs to love God first. When the young man or the young woman loves God, then the love toward the spouse or the other person is built on the perfect love of God. The measure is the love of Christ. The husband is asked to love his wife as Christ loved the church and sacrificed his life for it. Under these presuppositions, the man acquires a brave spirit. His heart is expanded. He becomes compassionate and is prepared to face anything that our fallen humanity brings about we read a great example from the lives of the saints from the Yerondikon, the Book of the Elders. St. Paul the Simple was married to an unfaithful wife, and I'm sure he exercised the necessary patience, God knows for how long. But one day he returned to his house early, midday, and found his wife defiling his bed with someone else, probably one of the neighbors. When he entered, he chuckled, and then he said, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, you can continue. And a day later, he discussed things with his wife, and uh, she decided to stay with a new man. Okay, keep the house, and I will go somewhere else. No hysterics, no threats, no guilt trips. He transcended all these things with much nobility. He went on and met St. Anthony. 
He became his disciple, and he became a great saint of our church. Now, I have met such people in our days. I have met people who faced such marital problems very successfully. They kept their composure. They acted in a spirit of compassion and humility, and they were able to save their wives and their entire families. And then we have all those who never understood the meaning and purpose of marriage, and they feel betrayed and forever dishonored and hurt and paralyzed. Not to mention the endless inquisitions that goes along with all this, the endless probes. The poor woman comes in full contrition. She says, look, I made a mistake and I can't bear it anymore. I'm going out of my mind. I feel the need to, to tell you. I feel the need to confess to you that I made a huge mistake. I'm sorry. And instead of rising to the occasion, instead of acting with compassion and understanding, much like we would expect God to act with us whenever we sin. And that's why St. Paul stresses that the head of the husband must be Christ. If Christ is not the head of the husband, then a terrible tribunal begins. How could you? Who was it? When did it happen? How did it happen? How many times did it happen? And this demonic refrain goes on and on and may continue every night for weeks straight. And someone could rightfully ask, my friend, aren't you supposed to be a member of the body of Christ? Have you never heard how your master, your head, the Lord Jesus Christ, treated the sinful woman? Were you never in church during Holy Week? Did Christ ask that harlot any questions? Did he torture her like you are torturing your wife? Why are you torturing your wife for months or years? Because of a sin? She repented. She confided in you. Why are you reopening her wounds? Now, if you ask him, now listen, mister, are you flawless? Are you angelic? Have you never sinned? Now, the truth is, most of these men are guilty of the same sins as well, if not during marriage, which is debatable, but at least before, and now they cannot cope because it happened to them once. Yes, but I never did anything like that to her. I have been faithful to her. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. Your wife weakened at some point and fell. Must we stone her? What happened to all these years of love and devotion and promises? Your love for her is not strong enough to overcome one of her mistakes? What kind of love is this? All these things, my good children, are the symptoms of a very bad foundation. We have been taught by the world to build our marriage on a very bad and weak foundation. We have been taught to idolize people and things. My wife is everything to me, or vice versa. Or my home is everything to me. My wife and my children is my life. They idolize their families. But these things are relative. Marriage is a form of this age. Love your wife and your children. That's wonderful. But you cannot idolize them because they are not absolute. Nothing in this fallen world is absolute except our relationship with the only absolute being, Christ our Lord. The purpose of our life does not end with our wife or our children and our happy family. The purpose of marriage is not to have children only. Couples who are not blessed with children or their children did not survive, what, is their marriage null and void? Of course not. 
we must learn not to raise idols in our hearts because God sooner or later will crush these idols to free our heart from them. We must be very careful not to idolize any creature, husband, wife, or children, or ideas and values. And all these wonderful things are relative and not everlasting. For us, the only absolute being is God, and unless we learn to love Him first, we will not be able to love those around us properly. Tragically, some husbands die prematurely, and their wife comes to confession full of tears, and she asks, Will I be with my husband after I die? Well, this is very sad. This question shows that we lack much understanding. Instead of being concerned about her husband's soul or what can we do to help his soul, the first question is, will I be with my husband again? Will I live with him forever in all eternity? Not even mentioning the name of Christ. Well, Muhammad teaches this. You will be in paradise with your wives. You will have uh, your harems and 70 virgins. That's for the men, of course. But this is a very materialistic outlook. This is not what life is all about. When we think like this, we simply show that we forgot our first love. Christ is not the center of our life. He's not in our heart. We expelled him and made room for all these idols that have no life in and by themselves. And you try to explain to these poor, sudden women, listen, my dear lady, the important thing in the other life is to be with Christ and not with our husband or our children. Yes, yes, but am I going to be next to my husband? I guess it's okay for Christ to be there too, but am I going to be next to my husband? Yes, through Christ, you will have communion with your husband. As comical as this may sound, these romantic and uh, fiery attachments are not healthy. They show an unhealthy spirituality, a spirituality unworthy of our saintly couples of the past. We read in the lives of the saints, uh, St. Mavra and St. Timotheus, a married couple that suffered during the Roman persecutions. St. Timotheus was condemned to death by crucifixion, and his wife Mavra went under the cross, not to beg him to save his life for her. But this valiant daughter of God told her husband, Be careful. Be very careful. Don't you cower. Stay strong. Don't you dare come down from that cross. Of course she loved her husband, but she loved him in such a perfect way and encouraged him to become a martyr of Christ. We have mothers who encouraged their sons and stayed with them through martyrdom. They transcended their motherly affections and instincts. These incredible Christian mothers stayed near their children, not to save their children from death and martyrdom, but they coached their children to become worthy imitators of Christ. Their biggest concern was the possibility of their child denying Christ and walking away from martyrdom. Didn't these mothers feel the pangs of motherly love? Of course. But the love of Christ flooded their being and helped them transcend the love for the earthly life of their children. These mothers were surrendering their life and love of their children in the eternal and everlasting love of Christ. These wives, these mothers, and these martyrs were not crazy. They were not tired of this life. 
They love this life, but they love Christ above everything, and they committed their lives, marriages, children, and livelihoods to Christ their God, as we repeat every day and on every divine liturgy. They did not idolize their relationships or their families. They enthroned Christ in the center of their hearts. In closing, my young friends, I know that it is very difficult for us to act like the saints from one day to the next. In the very least, we should at least be able to correctly diagnose some of our passions and weaknesses. And this will be of great help to us. It's a great start. For instance, if we realize that we are a jealous person, it is not a small thing to acknowledge this, to realize that, yes, unfortunately, I have this fault. This is a great start because if we confuse jealousy with love, then we will never be able to correct ourselves and we will always justify ourselves, thinking, I love her so much, so I must be possessive and very jealous of her. There's nothing worse for someone to be terribly ill and to refuse to believe that there's anything wrong with them, to live in a state of denial. Cure begins from the time I acknowledge that I am sick and I'm in need of therapy. I have a problem and I need to see a doctor. This is the beginning of my journey back to health. Therapy starts when you realize that the way you act does not stem from love but from your illness. You're missing the boat and you need to correct your ways. This is the purpose of these lessons, to help us discover the meaning of true love, what are the true energies of love, and how we can begin to develop our life's foundation on this solid ground. This is the great success in the mystery of marriage. Man does not become complete because he has sexual relations with his wife, but he becomes perfected because he learns how to transcend his selfish desires, and he learns to love his spouse with the expression of true love, a love that does not seek its own. This is the ultimate expression in human relations. Man's ultimate expression is not limited to sexual activities, but man's ultimate expression is to empty himself and love the other person unconditionally. This is what makes marriage an arena of salvation. And not all these different misconceptions that we may have been taught by this fallen world, a world that's getting worse by the day.